Good morning. Um, any children 3 to 12 can go downstairs for Children's Church at this time, although they don't have to. You're welcome to stay up and uh, participate here if, if that's the family's choice. Uh, I'd like to just take a moment now to pray once again. Lord, we've just sung about the, uh, the meeting we have with you. We're reminded of so many rivers as we sing that song. We're reminded of the, uh, the waters of the Red Sea where your children were, were uh, freed from, from slavery and, and, out, and traveled to meet you at Mount Sinai. We think of, of the walls of Jericho as the people came through the river of Jordan. We think of um, the baptism of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he came to meet us. And then our own baptisms as we've committed our lives to you and uh, seek to meet you daily, but maybe most especially together when we meet here as your church. Lord, I pray that we have already met you and that as we open your word together, we would see more of you than we saw before and that our lives would be changed by that knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was reading Ephesians this week, I, uh, I couldn't help but think about, uh, about different kinds of donations that people make. Uh, I was thinking about the donations or the gifts that God gives to us, and I thought about, about some other people. So I, I looked into it a little bit, and I, I want to ask you this question. Does anyone near, here know who Paul G. Allen is? Anyone heard that name, seen that picture? I don't see a lot of recognition. Um, Paul G. Allen is little known, but he is a childhood friend of Bill Gates and co-founder of Microsoft. He chooses to stay in the background, not be in the limelight, and, uh, and live kind of a private life. But he's, he is well known for his philanthropy. And I'll ask you this next question. What does Paul G. Allen think will improve the world? Now, if you didn't know even his name or his face, you probably can't answer this second question. But if I give you a little bit more information, I think you could probably have a good guess, uh, probably accurate uh, in, your, in your thinking about how to answer this question. What we know about Paul Allen is that he founded, um, he founded the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation. And through this foundation... He has personally donated from his own wealth the money to build the physical infrastructure, hire and pay the staff, and give the research grants for the Washington State uh, Institute of Brain Science. I don't know the total amount of money, but it's a lot of money and it's ongoing to keep this institute going. I think it would be a fair guess to, to think that Paul Allen believes that an increased knowledge of human brain will improve human life. You might disagree or disagree with him, but I think it's safe to say he thinks that's important. He thinks that's something that would be valuable in this world uh, to help make it a better place, given the fact that he's given so much of his personal wealth towards that project. Now let's ask you another one. Who knows who Estee Lauder is? Some I see one hand... Two hands. Yeah, there's a few. A few, mostly women, know who this is. Um, she's got an interesting backstory. 
uh, Esti is the is the daughter of Hungarian Jewish immigrants to the United States. Her parents came in 1908, and they settled in New York, and they had a hardware store. And she grew up in the in the little apartment above the hardware store. Uh, but she went on to to create one of the largest cosmetics conglomerates, uh, multi corporations in the world. Um, Maybe some of you have some of her products on your face right now, for all I know. Um, it, would, it would be uh, reasonable to think that. But, but let's ask the next question. What does Estee Lauder think would improve the world? Maybe better looking faces? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so, though. I mean, she, she obviously thinks that's something worth spending her life doing. But there's something else. She is one of only 23 people in the world who have given a single donation of more than a billion dollars. So that's a pretty big amount of money. And, and what did she do? What did she give towards? Uh, she gave $1.1 billion worth of art to the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art. So I think it would be safe to say that Estee Lauder believes that preserving and showing to the public the most important and valuable works of art the world has ever seen would improve the world. Agree or disagree with her, it seems quite evident, $1.1 billion worth of evidence, that she thinks that's important, that she thinks that's valuable, that she thinks it would improve this world to have that, that possibility. I'll do one more. Anyone know who Azim Premji is? and I probably mispronounced his name because he's from India. We're moving outside of North America now. Azim Premji, um, well, let's ask the next question. I, 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 I missed a slide when, my, when I was building this, so we can put it together. What does he think would improve the world? He's from India, uh, and he is the founder and owner of one of the largest software companies in the world, which makes him one of the wealthiest men in the world. But he's not household names like Microsoft. His software is probably the stuff controlling your ABS in your car when you drive home. His software is probably the stuff connecting your, your phone to your wireless headphones, that type of software, the stuff that works in the background in your smart TV and, your, and all of those things. He's, he's created all of that, or not him personally, but his company. In the last number of years, I think he started in 2008, he has made it his mission with his money to ensure that every child in India receives a primary education. So to do that, he's working on stage one and now starting on stage two. Stage one is to actually build the infrastructure because it wasn't there. So he's built bricks and mortar buildings where teachers can be trained. And, and now uh, he's working on getting education to the lower castes and to the slums and people who have no access to education, primary education for every child in India. An ambitious goal, and that's what he's working towards. So, so that's what he thinks would improve the world, and he's, he's giving the money to make it happen. So I want to ask another question, and, and the... the the illustration is imperfect. There's not a one-to-one -one parallel, but this is why I was thinking about these kinds of philanthropists who kind of stay in the background. We really don't know about them, but they're, they're showing us what's important to them. What does God think 
would improve the world? What does God think would make the world better? And the premise I'm working with here is that if we look at what God has given, what he has given towards, maybe we'll learn something about what he thinks will make the world a better place. Now you can you can see by now that I'm looking at Ephesians and not not um, not Philemon, and the reason is because last or two weeks ago when we looked at Colossians and we saw that God says my son gives you balance, and I was I was thinking, well, what what can we make a really practical uh, application of the teaching in Colossians, and I. I just couldn't come up with anything better than the letter to Philemon as an application to what's taught in Colossians. And so at the end of that sermon, uh, I played a video rendition of Philemon, and the letter was read here in our church at that time. And then when I came to this week, I was looking at Philemon, and I thought, well, we've already, I think, adequately covered that. Um, and so I, was, I decided to move on to Ephesians. So if you're following along in your reading card, or on our website, it's just one Sunday out now, because I've done that, so um, hopefully, well, Philemon's just one page, you can easily catch up in your reading if you're trying to read along. Um, but I want to look at Ephesians, and, and, and right off the top here, I'm going to say, in Ephesians, God says, the church is my plan A, and I have no plan B. That's what we're going to talk about today, and I think that's, I think that's accurate. God doesn't need a plan B. Because he, he's not going to make a mistake with his first plan. He's not going to uh, get a thousand years into his plan and all of a sudden decide it's not the right thing and, and go a different way. Uh, that's, that happens to me, that happens to you, but it doesn't happen to him. So in terms of the context for, for Ephesians, we, we understand that, that the, the letter in our Bibles titled Ephesians is not written specifically to the church in Ephesus. Uh, we know historically, we've looked at this already in this, these New Testament series, that when Paul first traveled to Ephesus, he stayed there longer than he stayed anywhere else, three years plus. And when he was in Ephesus, he collected young men, promising young men from all the surrounding areas in what we call Asia Minor in biblical studies, but today we call Tur most of it the region of Turkey. And he collected these young men at Ephesus, and in Acts it tells us he rented a hall, and he lectured every day in that hall for three years. So essentially what he did is he set up a school of discipleship, or a school of church planting. And these young men came in, they went under his teaching, and they went out on assignment, and then they came back, this is what happened, this is what, what I did, what could I have done better, they, they did... That's what I think happened there, is they, they did that. But also, all the leaders from all the churches came to Ephesus uh, to, to hear from Paul and gain his wisdom. And so, so that's what I think was going on there. So now, it's years later, and Paul is in prison in Rome under house arrest. And he writes Ephesians, what we know of as Ephesians, and he sends it to Ephesus because Ephesus is still the place where that distribution of knowledge is happening. It's the central hub of the churches that he's planted throughout that whole area. And so when he sends the letter to Ephesus, he's not addressing a specific church. This letter doesn't have greetings to individual people and stuff like that. It, he's addressing all of the churches and, and sending it to Ephesus to be distributed through those distribution channels that he set up when he was there. 
that system that he put in place. And so Ephesians is more general than specific. It's, and in Ephesians, Paul is, is laying out for us what he understands in terms of what is the church of Jesus Christ and what is God doing in the world. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to obviously look briefly. Here's the outline. I'm not going to read these passages. This is something that you can just, I'm going to just briefly mention each one as we go along, how it contributes to this, this overall teaching, this overall um, project that Paul's working on, and, and by extension, I believe God's working on. But we are going to read the first section because it's foundational to the rest. In chapter 1, verse 3 to 14, we have what I think is the most impressive, most glorious, uh, maybe not the most important, but, but at least in some ways the most important passage in all of scriptures. You can, you'd be hard-pressed to find something that, that packs more thought and theology into a few verses and, and just ex- lays it out there for us. And so we are going to um, take a look at that. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 14. I don't have it on the screen for you, so you can listen as I read or read along. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It begins like this. All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. And so he starts off with this exalted phrase, if you could just imagine that. God has blessed us, and he's referring here, us as the church, and throughout Ephesians, it's plural. Every time you see a you, or, or, or a they, or a, any, any pronoun in Ephesians, it's all plural. We should read this in South Texan dialect, y'all, 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 all the way through. This is addressed to the church, not to the individual. But he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Now, we could search all the scriptures for all the heavenly blessings and go on for weeks and weeks just to unpack that one phrase. But it's all there and it means all of those things. When we were united with Jesus Christ, that's what God has given. That's his donation. That's his deposit. What does God give to well, he gives all the blessings of heaven to the church. Verse 4, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be, be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. That's a, it's a lovely turn of phrase, isn't it? The way they put it in the New Living. This is this was what God wanted to do, so He did it. He wanted to give every blessing, and He wanted to create this thing under Jesus Christ, which is His own family, the Church, and it gave Him pleasure to do it. So we praise God for the glorious grace He poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. So in those previous donations I talked about, they gave money of their personal wealth. 
Well, it says here that God is rich in kindness and grace. He has an infinite supply, an infinite bank account of kindness and grace. And he gave from that that he had to purchase our freedom through his son, Jesus Christ. It says in verse 8, he showered his kindness on us. Do you remember the rains we've just had? I remember well because I was trying to make my grass green and I had this little thing spraying water. And you could see <clears throat> the exact circles where, where the, the circles of the sprinkler made it a little bit greener here and it was still dry here. You could see all of that. It was kind of pathetic. And then in one night, God just erased all of my efforts. A little rain shower. Uh, but not just mine. He watered the whole earth. And that's just the physical water, but here he says a different kind of showers. He showered his kindness on us, along with wisdom and understanding. Verse 9, God has revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. What is God's good plan? What, why is he doing all of this? Why is he giving so much? And verse 10 tells us. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. So that's the plan. There's no, we don't have to question, we don't have to scratch our heads and wonder what God's plan is. God's plan is that at the right time He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. And how is He going to do that? Not how is He going to. How is He working on that right now? How is God going to do that? He says in verse 11, Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for He chose us in advance, and He makes everything work out according to His plan. We just heard what His plan is, to put everything in heaven and earth under Christ, and now He says, that's why He gave the church the inheritance that we've just been talking about, in order that it will work out according to His plan. How? In the church, through the church. God's purpose was that the Jews who were first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now that you Gentiles have also heard the truth and the good news God, that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, He identified you as His own by giving you the Holy Spirit. That's another way of saying the Holy Spirit is all of these blessings, all of these donations, all of these deposits whom He promised long ago. The, verse 14, the Spirit of God's the, the, the Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us the inheritance He promised, that He has purchased us to be His own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify Him. I don't know if you can put that all together. There's a lot there. He purchased us to be His own people. That's the summary of the plan. Us being the church. God's plan to put all things under Christ in heaven and on earth is by purchasing the church to be his people. That's his plan. That's what he's doing. That's what God thinks will make this world better. But not only this world, but the world to come. 
Well, we could obviously camp on these verses for weeks, unpacking everything that's alluded to, all the different scripture references that are hinted at and, and spoken of here. But we're going to go through the rest of this outline quickly and just see how Paul unpacks it, because that's what he does through the rest of Ephesians. He unpacks this blessing, tells us what it is and how it works. The first thing he does as he unpacks it is he prays. Prayer is a few verses long. If you ever want to learn how to pray, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. But there uh, in the middle, we have this. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That's the thing he prays for. How is this going to happen? How is this blessing that's going to unfold as the people of God, God's own people, through which all heaven and earth will come under submission to Jesus Christ. How will that happen? According to Paul's prayer, it will happen as each one of us gets to know Jesus better. That's how it happens. That's the project. That's God's plan, as prayed by the Apostle Paul. So then we move on past the prayer to the first section of teaching and the summary statement, the way you could describe these tense verses is that we are made alive in Christ. Before we were dead, now we're alive. And, and this, is, uh, this is exemplified in verse 7. So God, or this is the, sorry, this is, this is the reason we're made alive in verse 7. So God can point to us in all future ages. So that doesn't just mean now in this age, but this means even after the return of Christ. Or this means when we read in Revelation about the, the army of Armageddon and the, and the chariots of God and, and this, this big thing that seems like it's going to be a big clash. And what's God going to do? He's going to say, God can point to the church as an example of his incredible wealth and his grace and kindness and show all he has done for us who are united in Christ Jesus. What the church does here and now on earth is going to play a part in the future ages where God's going to point to the church and say, see, my love is real, my kindness is real, and it wins. The gates of hell will not stand against it. They didn't stand against, the gates of hell didn't stand against it here in Wainwright in the Evangelical Free Church. They won't stand against it in eternity in the ages to come. That's the purpose. That's what God's doing. That's what we are a part of as the church. It's not just about making my life a little bit better than it was yesterday. It's about winning the battle of the ages by being the church here and now, accepting and receiving the blessings, the gifts, and living them out in our life together. That's what God says will happen. God can point to the church in future ages as an example. We go on then. Not only are we made alive in Christ, but we become one. We become one in Christ. How is it that God's riches are shown in this age and the ages to come? God's riches are shown and demonstrated and made visible 
when we become one in the church. This is something that the world cannot achieve in its own power. We can't achieve in our own power. Because without the donation, without the gift of all of these blessings and our inheritance in Christ, it's not possible. We create division. The harder we try to be together, the more we push each other aside. Again, we could spend, we could spend weeks on, on these verses, how we are made one in Christ. But let's just summarize with verse 20. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So you understand what that means, right? We, that is the church, before we were described as the people of God, now he's changing the illustration here. He's talking about the house of God. We, the church, are the house built on the foundation of the prophets, which is the Old Testament, and the apostles, which is the New Testament. And so God hasn't changed his plan. He's been building the foundation since the calling of Abraham. And once the foundation is fully in place and the top, the top plates are put on the foundation by the apostles, then he sets Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And the cornerstone, not so much in our type of architecture, but in ancient architecture, was the stone that was set perfectly. And then all the lines of the house are calculated off that stone. If the cornerstone is set straight, it defines the house. So the foundation has been built by the prophets and the apostles. Jesus Christ then is the cornerstone, and then it says in verse 21, we are carefully joined together in Him, becoming a holy temple of the Lord. So each individual one of us is placed into the church in exactly the position among the people that God chooses, based on the direction set by the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. And by doing that, and by participating in that, we become a temple. We become the fulfillment of that tent in the wilderness and all that it meant. The place where people meet God, where God comes down to meet people, and the relationship is established through our sacrifices. This is the picture Paul is painting. It's not out of line. This has been God's plan from the beginning, and it continues to be His plan for the world. He then goes in chapter 3 and, and talks about his suffering. And you might think for a moment that he's changed the topic. But not really. Because what he's, what he's conveying to the Ephesians and what he's conveying to us is this. I'm in prison. And it's not always good. I suffer. But I don't hardly notice. Because my suffering is a participation in this glorious picture I've been painting for you. I would give anything. I would give, give everything if I could be a participant, if I, could, if I could take my place in that building that God is building and, and advance it and build it bigger and, and make it stronger. So it's worth the cost. It's worth the cost. It's, wor it's worth whatever I have to suffer is what Paul says in this section. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about my suffering. Well, yeah, maybe send me a blanket and some food because I'm kind of hungry and cold. But, but really, it's fine. Because whatever I have to pay in my own personal suffering is just a participation in what Jesus has already done on the cross. 
a participation in bringing into reality in this world the house of God, the people of God, the community of the church. Then he moves on to pray again. Much prayer is needed in this project. We're never going to achieve these things as a church unless we're in prayer. And so he prays again, and this time he prays for something that at first glance most of us think, oh yeah, I'm fine, I understand love. But his prayer says, I pray that you, the church, would have power to understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. And what that prayer shows us is that we can't understand it on our own. Our human wisdom, our human experience doesn't get us there. If we think we know what love is, we, we haven't begun if we've only experienced love in its human form. So Paul prays for us that we would receive power from God to understand love. It's a miracle when it happens. It's a miracle. It's a work that only God can do. That we would receive the power from the Holy Spirit to understand and know what love is. It's not a surprise that we're not very good as a church at doing this. Because we can't. It's impossible. It requires power from above to even just understand, let alone put into practice, the love that is God's love. But this is what Paul prays for. Perhaps we would pray for one another in this way. Instead of identifying what my problem is and praying that I overcome it, pray that I would have power to understand the love of God. That's what I want you to pray for your pastor. Yeah, I have problems. Hopefully I'm still improving on them. But pray that I would have the power to understand God's love. I'll pray the same for you. Don't pray that I get over all my physical sicknesses. Paul was in prison praying this. He wasn't praying that he gets out of prison. He was praying that we would understand God's love. Far more important accomplish the plan of God it is that you understand his love than anything else we better move on chapter 4 1 to 16 he talks about a number of different things but really the central concept here is the different kinds of gifts that he gives through the Holy Spirit different gifts in order to do work works of service serve one another through our gifts and the fruit of the works of service will be unity in the church and when the church is unified under Christ through the gifts of each individual we will reach maturity only as we minister to one another and here we have a, a balance against what was said earlier about about being one in Christ so so in the earlier verses he talked about Jews and Gentiles different kinds of tribes of people putting aside their differences and coming together and being one, being unified. That's a miracle of God. When humans try to do that, the only way we can manage it is when we exterminate our differences. Then we can be unified. And so we become less in order to be together. 
That's how humans do it. But here, now, in these verses, we have the opposite. We have the, the, the expression that the Spirit of God, as God comes to each one of us, will be expressed in our differences. Not in erasing our differences. So we become more fully individualized as ourselves according to our gifts that God has given us. And the result of becoming more different will be unity and maturity. You see, we can't grasp this. How many of us, when we got married, thought this marriage will be great as soon as I turn my spouse into the same as me? That's how humans think. That's how we operate. We start a company. We set a, a behavior guidelines, put uniforms, make everyone the same, hoping we'll have unity. But God says we're one in Christ as we become more fully our individual selves. We need to pray for power to understand this love. It's as much a miracle when this happens as the incarnation. Different gifts leading to maturity. And he goes on then to describe this whole thing that he's talking about as if we're waking up for the first time. As if we've been asleep throughout our lives. And we can only see things vaguely in dreams. In dreams you know that you can't really control what happens. It's out of your it's out of your conscious control. It's, it's like we've been living in this world as if we were dreaming. And now in Christ, as we receive these gifts and understand these things and begin to live into Him, it's like we wake up for the first time and see clearly and become actual agents in the world. But I think He means more than just that because I think He's referring to the way Jesus talked about sleeping and waking. Where Jesus talked about when people died, He said they went to sleep. And then when they were resurrected from the dead, they're woken up. So what he's talking about here is resurrection power acting in our lives even now already. We begin to participate in our own resurrection as we do these things. Yes, we'll still physically die, but it won't be a discontinuation from what we've already started. Again, we pray that we would have the ability to understand these things so we can put them into practice. It's beyond us. But it's what He gives. It's what He has donated towards. What is God's priority? Look at His gifts and what they're pointed at. The gift of God created the church, His body in this world. Now you would think because I've done a really poor job of describing this stuff. I know I have. Because it's impossible. It's so difficult to describe. It's, 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 it's the kind of things as you read Ephesians, and I hope you will read it after this with these things in mind, that just elevate your thoughts and you feel like you're just barely grasping but not quite understanding. And you hope to grow into these things more and more and understand more and more. So after we reach these, these amazing heights of miraculous gifts from God that transform people into a church which is His body, this is His plan for the world, His only plan. 
you'd think the next thing would be amazing, incredible, miraculous feats that we would do in the world that would hit the high headlines of the news and that would do all of this. And what does he turn to next in terms of the application of all of this? Have you read Ephesians? Chapter 5, verse 22 to 6, verse 9. Husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. That's it. He's telling us that the way this glorious gift of God works its way into this world is every single day through your most ordinary relationships. That's where heaven comes to earth. That's where we participate in the transformation of this world that is in rebellion against God to the place where everything in heaven and on earth is under His feet. That happens this afternoon around the barbecue. That's where it happens. Husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters, the household, the people you interact with every single day. That's how God changes the world. That's His plan. His plan is not the spotlight. His plan is not the headline. His plan is not the big, huge, amazing Superman activities that you dream of that will change the world. His plan is to change your relationship with the people you see every day in such a way that when the watching world looks on, it'll be just like at the crucifixion where the centurion looked at Jesus and said, the way this man has conducted himself, surely he is God. And the world would look at our church. The way these people interact with one another, surely that must be God. It can't be explained. That's God's plan to transform this world. His only plan, the church. He closes then with the armor. I want you to remember as you read this last chapter of Ephesians that Ephesians is addressed to the church, not the individual. So when we read this, I, I just, I'm not going to do it, but I just give you this assignment. Maybe you'll do it sometime. When you read about the helmet, Maybe just take that one phrase and take it with you for a whole day. And every time when you have a moment, you think about the helmet and think about, what does this mean if we apply it to the church instead of just to me individually? And go through the armor like that. It'll, it'll reveal truth to you that you've maybe never seen before. Because that's what it means. I think of, I think of David. Remember the boy David when, when he was confronting Goliath? And, and Saul said, well, use my armor. And he put on the armor and he was too small and it didn't fit. He couldn't fight. It, was, it, it wouldn't work. That's what I think. We try to put on the armor as myself as an individual. So I think about, we'll, we'll just look at one and, and you can extrapolate from that and, and think through the others. But let's just take, for example, the belt of truth. If I take that to mean that I, individually, am supposed to put on truth. I know Jesus Christ is truth and all that theological stuff. But if I put on truth, then guess what? I know what truth is. 
But then when you contradict me, because I have truth on, you must be wrong. And then we're going to fight. And we're going to lose everything we've just talked about in this whole book of Ephesians. But let's imagine it the other way. Let's imagine that truth is Jesus Christ. And the belt goes around the whole church. Every one of us. Now, we all have different bits of knowledge. You know things I don't know. I know things you don't know. Some of it's true. Some of it's false. And I don't even know which of my beliefs and my understandings are true and which ones are false. But if we're tied together around Christ and we're not going to jump out, we're one body, we're being bound together, then we're going to have the conversations that bring both of us to a better understanding of truth. We're going to have the hard talks because we're confident that the belt keeps us together even if we disagree. We're going to be confident that because He has given us from the riches of heaven the kindness, the kindness and grace and mercy to love one another even when we don't agree. It's His riches given to us that we could be like Him. He gave to us before we agreed with Him. He forgave us before we even admitted we were sinners. He gave the gift that would provide our forgiveness. And so these truths we hold around and, and each day as we interact, as we put into practice these things, it gets pulled a notch tighter and we lose a bit of weight, a little bit of false. And we become unified and strong and the gates of hell can't touch us because we know the truth. We know the truth. Not I know. We know. That's a different picture. But that's, I believe, the picture of the armor that, God, that Paul wants us to have. It's addressed to the church, to put it on, as a body of Christ. It doesn't fit us as individuals. In Ephesians, God says, The church is my plan A. And I don't have a second plan. It's the only plan I have. It's a perfect plan. This, uh, this little letter packs a punch. It's both a challenge, but it's also an amazing encouragement. I think you already know the challenge. Because if we ask the questions I asked at the beginning of you, what do you think will make the world a better place? All we need to do is look at what you give towards. I don't just mean your money. I do mean your money. But I also mean your time, your talent, your emotions, your abilities. What do you give towards? What do you donate to? Because we can tell what's important to you. We can tell what you think will make a difference in this world by looking at what you donate to. And all the many different ways that you can give. Paul thought giving up his freedom was worth it for the sake of the church. Jesus gave everything. His life, His glory, for the sake of the church. So that's a big challenge to me. I expect it's a challenge to you. There's so many projects to make this world better that we could give our time and resources towards. But will any of them succeed? Or am I going to put my donations 
behind God's plan? Am I going to be all in for God's plan for this world? That's the challenge, but I want to close with the encouragement because it's, it's an incredible encouragement. What this means is that the things you do this afternoon are a participation in the battles of heaven and earth. The ordinary things you do in relationships with one another in the church, invisible to the watchers of this world, but working its way through this world like yeast in a piece of bread, planted like a little mustard seed that will grow to take over the whole garden. What we do as a church, the ordinary things, the encouraging one another, the praying for one another that we would know and understand Jesus Christ and His love. The little hint to the other person to help them love their wife, love their husband, raise their children. The ability to have disagreements in love and grace. All of these things that we do together in church build up the body. And as we build up the body of Jesus Christ, then God will say, there are my people. And because they're my people, I will give them my Holy Spirit like the pillar of fire came down on the Holy of Holies in the deserts of Sinai. And the looking world will look and say, as they did to Jesus Christ on the cross, I can't explain that unless there's a God. And unless that God has come to know these people. And then the world will be transformed into the image of our God. What could be more encouraging than that? The ordinary things we do are the very things God has commissioned. There's no other way that God has given that heaven and earth will come to the place where it's all under the authority of Jesus Christ except through the church. We're not good at it, but let's keep at it. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We'll sing together as we think about these things, and Sheila will close our time in prayer.